Well, we're working through this series, The Walk of Life, and um, you might have noticed (laughs) we've been uh, continually reading from Mark chapter 5 up to now. It's one of those uh, famous, really well-known passages in the Bible. You might want to, over the next weeks, become acquainted with those few chapters. It's the section of the Bible which is described as the Sermon on the Mount. It's a point, point where Jesus is teaching, and it's incredibly practical teaching. It's a whole series of points that Jesus is making. But I think in lots of ways, the key, and hopefully we're going to be able to identify it this afternoon, the key goes in how Jesus introduces this particular uh, sermon. So often the introduction is quite important, and um, I can't claim that the introduction will be as important this afternoon, but hopefully it will be something which is quite uh, a bit of a hook, if you like, for us to grab a hold of. You might, have, uh, you might be aware that um, I think it's the most successful iPlayer program of 2013, or series of programs. Uh, it's uh, the BBC program Top Gear. Some of you might love it, some of you might loathe it, but most of us will know about Top Gear. It's a fascinating program, and uh, it was recently written about, I think, in The Guardian. Uh, somebody said that it is written um, uh, for I think something like, it's written targeted at middle-aged men with, uh, uh, with an age of nine. I think that, that's the way it's, it was described. But I read the article, and uh, in a way, uh, the description of Top, top Gear as, a, as a, an ambition, as a goal really kind of puts the finger on where we are today. Modern life for adults is all very hard. The workplace is not freer, but regimented by management systems and nonsense enforced by going on courses. Does that ring true with some of you? I know some of you are thinking, yeah, yeah, I'm with that. Email hasn't decreased the workload, but in fact piled it on. Yeah, there was a bit of a, yeah, and with that, the demand to be accountable and produce results hangs heavy over every worker. And by the weekend, they need a release valve. That's where we come in. An hour a week where three badly dressed middle-aged men bicker, fall over and catch fire. (laughs) That's the description of Top Gear. And yet, below the surface, it's saying something incredibly powerful. In the reality of the pressures of life, in the reality of the challenges of our context today, the response that we look for is... An hour a week where three badly dressed men bicker, fall over and catch fire. What is that? An hour to escape. An hour to escape the reality of what we're facing day by day. Now, I guess that uh, Top Gear are not the only ones who are trying to deliver that for us, are they? In In fact, this building that we are in is absolutely a temple and committed to the idea of creating for us moments of escape, 
Um, it's even called that. It's a moment of escape. It's a moment which takes us and gives us some little bit of respite in the challenges and demands of the life that we live. I want to ask you a question right up front. It might not be that it's, it's skiing or snowboarding or um, surfing or whatever it might be. It might not be that Top Gear is your escape. But I guess most of us in our uh, society today are looking at some form, some way, some means where escape is the ambition. I want to ask the question, is our understanding of life to endure and to escape? (laughs) That's what's being suggested, that we endure and escape. Escapism is the new dynamic of our human experience. We, in, in experience terms, the objective is survive by escaping for moments in time. I think that's fascinating. I think it also captures a phenomenon which is born from excess. It's interesting that we have times where we look to escape Generally speaking, we have times when we look to escape when our society in general terms is enjoying excess. We can look back in time, we can look back in history and see that that has been repeated in the past. The Roman Empire, arguably, fell apart during a period of excess where escapism was the ambition. Not for everybody in one sense, because not everybody was rich enough to escape. So you might say, well, all of those who were really poor, then they couldn't escape. But the reality was that in a society which had windows and ideas of the hope of escape, even those who couldn't afford to escape had the ambition to escape. Do you see what's happening? When, it, when it's not possible for me, because my my position in society doesn't give me the opportunity, I still have a desire to live in that way. I still want to escape. When there is a society which is born of, which is created in excess, we have a desire to escape. Isn't it interesting? When we live in a society generally where there is difficulty uh, uh, testing, uh, difficulty toughness, if you like, in life, we tend to have a desire to seek meaning. And meaning and escape tend to be the two desires, the two ways in which we try to work out what life is all about. So here's the question, reframed. What is the goal, what is the purpose the objective of our life. It might not be top gear, but are we living with a desire to create moments of escape or is there something more? Is there a bigger idea, another way of living, another way to walk the walk of life in a way which is shaped completely differently? I want to suggest that as we work through this uh, particular section of the Bible, that Jesus gives us the answer, that there is another way to perceive life, 
another way to understand life, and therefore another way to live life. Now, many of us um, might say, well, I understand that, life in Jesus, and therefore if we are believers, we might want to understand a little bit more about what that life looks like. Alternatively, we might be thinking, I want to understand why Jesus is a significant figure in saying we should live life differently. Because after all, I am totally committed to the idea of escaping every now and then. It's really great. I enjoy it. I'll be honest with you right now. I think that God has designed a world in which moments of enjoying his world are part of our human dynamic. It is not a bad thing, okay, to enjoy the beauty of human engineering in a 12-cylinder Ferrari. (laughs) It's not a bad thing, but if that is an escape as opposed to a moment to understand the glory of what it is to be created with the creative abilities and desires that God has placed in our hearts, we are missing something. Let's hear what Jesus has to say. I think he he points us in a direction which has three factors to it in this little section. The importance of the past, the shaping of today, and the preparing for the future. That's the three steps that we're going to take this afternoon. The importance of the past, shaping for today, and preparing for the future. The previous verse, which isn't up on the screen, verse 20, reads like this. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the thing. We live in a, we live in a world which tends to love the idea, the the idea of of God's blessing, the idea of God as a giver of eternal happiness on any terms, on any terms. As long as God gives it in the end, then that's what God is there to do. Jesus, right off the bat, as he starts this sermon, and, and this is why Jesus opening words are so critically important for everything else. He says, unless your righteousness or your, um, your goodness before me, that's the way to read right, righteousness, your appropriateness of living before me exceeds the religious elite, you won't see heaven. That's, that's important, isn't it? Jesus is saying something really important here. He's saying there is a possibility of seeing heaven and there is a reality of not seeing heaven. And it's down to now. It's down to our life now. That's really important. First thing that he says, verse 21, looks to the past, the importance of the past. Verse 21 says this. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. What's Jesus talking about? Uh, If we're not sure, let me uh, guide us through the Bible. 
Uh, one of the important things about Jesus is he comes along and he doesn't start something new. He builds on the work that has been going on throughout the history of time as God has been dealing with this world. He's referring back here to Exodus chapter 20. Contained in there are the Ten Commandments. One of those commandments, you shall not kill. Jesus is referring to that. Now, the rest of Exodus, other parts of the uh, first five books of the Bible, first latter four of those, uh, describes the repercussions of breaking this law. So Jesus is saying, let me take you back thousands a year, thousand or so years. Let me take you back and let me see what God said, what my father established, what I established back there. I established this principle. You have heard it said, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's just a good thing. We look at that and we think, that's a good thing that we shouldn't murder. It's established now into societies. It's established into our way of thinking. In fact, it's so written into our way of thinking that we don't see it in any shape or form at all as controversial. Not at all. It's not controversial. However, I want to suggest to you this, that when God first brought that concept to his people, it was a challenge to their thinking. Hang on, what? It was groundbreaking. The idea of establishing a way of living, a society, which stripped individuals of the right of vengeance and established justice within society. That's groundbreaking. It's massive. God is saying to his people, the way you are to live is not by taking the law into your own hands. It's not saying that it's, we can get away with murder, to coin a phrase. You can't get away with murder. You can't get away with murder. But we move the response from you personally to us society, nation. That's what God said to his people. If you are going to be my people, we're going to establish a nation and a society which has principles of law. In other words, in an ancient world which had a tendency to take the law into our own hands, which had a tendency to have the right for me personally to respond, God was saying, no, (laughs) that is not right. Uh, David Wells very helpfully puts his finger on a principle here. The idea of God intervening throughout the history of this world and little by little gradually calming the world. We can't even begin to understand what that might mean. The idea of a world where murder is an acceptable thing in terms of vengeance. And yet, if we lived in the ancient world, that would, for many of us, be just a normal part of life. Maybe we can see a little bit, if we look not so far back in time, of this kind of principle. You see, what that did is it said, don't wreak vengeance, 
seek justice. And that's good, isn't it? We're, we're with that. What we now understand is it is equally bad if the, the nation or the society or the, the law structure seeks vengeance. That's bad. If the lawmakers seek vengeance, that's a bad thing. We, we've got that written into our way of thinking now. It's a great part of it. It's a pretty gruesome part of the movie, but it's a great part of the movie. The thing that kicks off the whole of William Wallace's journey in Braveheart. If you've seen the film, it's the indiscriminate killing by the state power of individuals. And we look at that and we think that is a really bad thing. It's wrong for the state to wreak vengeance. And yet back then, it was not considered the kind of atrocity that we now see it to be. Do you see the way over time, the shaping of God's law has a greater and greater impact. There is an importance to the past. It has a role to play. Don't forget that the fact that God says do not kill... Is the stepping stone that he put in place back there. However, having said that, the importance of the past, let's see how it is shaping for today. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. <laughs> what is Jesus doing? What is, he, what is he confronting? And how does it tie in to his opening point? That you've got to have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees. He's basically saying this. You see, the problem with the Pharisees is they have taken the law... Do not kill, which is a great law, and they've made it static and out there. It's a static law which is out there. And everything relates to that static law. And as we move and as we continue to change, we keep it out there. In other words, we've created a law which is a law of letters... And not a law which is the spirit of the heart. We've created something which is a simple tick box of law. What can we do with a tick box of law? With a tick box of law, we can look at the simple statement and we can get a pen and we can say, tick, never killed anybody. Great stuff. I'm okay. (laughs) What does Jesus do? He shapes the principle of that law and he brings it forward to the people for the day and he moves the law from outside of them to inside of their hearts. And he says, are you still keepers of that law? Because let me just reframe the spirit of that law. 
Because do, you shall not kill isn't about the tick box of whether you've killed somebody or not. It's the attitude deep down inside. Because you see, anger. You are as guilty of killing somebody when you express anger towards somebody. And now, straight away, I'm guessing that many of us are thinking, well, hang on a sec. (laughs) Surely not. Surely not. And yet what Jesus is doing is contextualizing the law from the past, bringing it forward to the day and saying, now let's apply it to our hearts. Anger. If you're angry, with who? With your brother or sister. The words that are used there don't literally have to mean blood relationship. They can, but they don't literally have to mean blood relationship. But what he is talking about is if you are angry with somebody who you are really close to. And of course, none of us have ever done that, have we? We've never been angry with anybody who's really close to us. Have we? <laughs> He's saying, look, if you are angry with somebody who's close to you, you you've, you're guilty of murder. Don't we love the idea of a law that's out there? Straight away, as soon as we start digging into it, I want to keep the law out there. I don't want to move it into here. Because as soon as I move it into here, I realize... I'm guilty of anger. I am guilty of murder according to the way that Jesus contextualizes the law. Raka, what does that mean? A worthless individual. A worthless individual. (laughs) Let's contextualize a worthless individual, shall we? For the sake of the recording, that's a loser sign. Somebody who's a, you're just a loser. You're a waster. You're an idiot. Because that's what Jesus says. You fool. You see the way he builds it up. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. But we're not, are we? In that day, we weren't answerable to the court. And yet, Jesus is saying, You are answerable to the court. To be perfectly honest, if Jesus had said to somebody in that day, uh, Raka, um, they would not be facing the Hebraic court, the Jewish court. And yet Jesus is saying, he's introducing an idea here. You're answerable to the court. If you say, fool, you will be in danger of the fire of hell. The move from the outside to the inside, the recasting of the law has profound implications. And that is exactly what Jesus is determined to do. He's saying to the individuals who are hearing him at this point in time, whenever you keep the law out there, Whenever your ambition is to create the tick box law where you can say, I'm okay, you are missing the spirit of the law. And let me make it clear to you, I will move the implications of the law to inside of you. It moves 
into your heart. And then we realize every single one of us, when Jesus recontextualizes the spirit of the law that was written back there, we know that we're guilty. How do we respond? Well, one of the natural responses, and I think that it still remains today, one of our natural responses to a sense of guilt is to create our league table (laughs) or our balances, however you want to describe it. You know, you've got um, in a league table, those of you who are into it, um, you know you've got uh, goals for and goals against. Uh, And you've got your goals, plus or minus. Goals for, goals against. Tend to think about good and evil like that, don't we? I'll I'll accept all my bad things. Okay, I've got a bad thing over there. I know that I've thought racker. That person over there, I've thought racker. But do you know what? I've done this good thing over here. (laughs) So that might be one away goal against me, goal conceded. But you know what? This, is, this has got to be worth two goals scored, surely. It's got to be worth two goals scored. So that goal conceded over there, well, I've made it up with this. Look at what Jesus says. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, there's my goal, there's my two goals. And, the remember, and you there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. It is worthless as a gift until you resolve the issue. You see, in the economy of Jesus, he is not in the game of racking up goals conceded and goals scored. Things that are good and things that are bad. Things that we can say, I've done this, and things, okay, I've failed. And as long as we're saying, look, forget that. The way that we live is not a way to try to secure success. It's an outcome of who we are. We want to give our gifts at the altar. We have no altar in here. In fact, Paul says, present your offering which is the whole of your life. Give the whole of your life as an offering. Present that before the spiritual altar of God. Give your life in service, but don't try to give your life in service as a payback for the own goals. Deal with those responses. Deal with those attitudes. You see, the problem for the Pharisees was they kept the law out there, they made it a letter, and they didn't accept the Spirit. They failed to see that the law is not static. They made it static. They made it letters of law rather than attitude of heart. Now let's contextualize, shall we, for today. How do we contextualize this? I think it's dead easy. We feel really comfortable with many of our anti-hate laws. You know, they're, they're, they're the kind of the, they're the fallout of the you shall not kill. We think they're right. We think they're good for society. We think they're great for society. But we keep them out there and we carry on thinking, you fool. 
our attitudes to others elevate me to the detriment of other people. That's the game that we play. That's the attitude that we live. We say, effectively, raka to many people. <laughs> it, it was a rather poignant slip as I was typing up my notes for this afternoon. Working on a, on a laptop keyboard and I'm typing away and when I came to type Raka in inverted commas, I accidentally typed hashtag Raka. <laughs> Just think about that. Just think about the attitude which says hashtag Raka. The attitude that we pour out in the unprotected ways of behavior that expose our hearts in what is now termed our social networks. Our social way of relating to others exposes our hearts so quickly and so easily. And the reality is, friends, it exposes a seam of problem, a deep-run seam that says far more hashtag racker than I honor you, I value you, I love you. We could go on, but the reality is, I don't think we need to, to be honest. I think we can create enough of these jumps in our minds. We can create enough of the connections that see that when we contextualize this, when we shape this for today, when we say, okay, Jesus is saying back there for the problem for the people was they never moved the idea of killing to an attitude of the day, we can, we can live with that. We can say, right, well, I'm, not gonna, I'm now going to make the law whether I actually say this and actually say that. One of the things that we see in uh, the life of Jesus is this attitude was challenged by many people. You say, well, what exactly, what exactly do you mean by brother? just so that I can make sure that I'm keeping the law? Let, just describe for me, who is brother? And Jesus says to the Jewish people, it's the Samaritan. <laughs> it's the one who you by, by nature hate. So, so we can say, well, just help me understand. <laughs> What's my heart and what's my attitude you know there's many of us that are more aware and more deceitful about the fact that I don't want to expose the realities of my heart in social media <laughs> and the reality is it just keeps going on anyway it still goes on what is Jesus doing He's saying to us that the fault line in your heart means 
that you are not able to keep this requirement. Do you see what he's saying? He's, he's raising the bar of attainment to a point where none of us are able to keep it. That's the point that he's making. So we, please don't go away and say, I've just got to work so much harder. I've just got to work really hard to make sure that I don't have this attitude and that attitude. The way that Jesus is framing this is he's, he's escalating the issue in our minds so that we understand we cannot keep the law. We cannot when we really understand the spirit of the law. So what is the response? If the impasse is important, which it is, it was for them and it is for us today, if it's shaping for today, what about preparing for the future? Jesus makes two statements. Firstly, he says that guilt for Raqqa, an attitude of Raqqa, brings eternal judgment. So resolve it quickly, he says. After he's talked about the need to resolve it, he says this, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taken you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and the officer may be th- and, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus is saying you need to understand the significance. In other words, as you are going through this walk of life, As you are going on this journey, you need to understand that the journey that you are making is continuously towards the judge. The judge who is going to say to you ultimately, now let's have a look at this. Guilty. Preparing for the future is the call that Jesus is making here. He's saying be prepared for the future. He's ratcheted up the significance and he's basically said, you're going to fail. That sounds, that sounds like terrible news. And yet it is the doorway for the greatest news that human beings can hear. Because it is not until we realize that we cannot keep the law that we are completely unable to satisfy the requirements of the judge. When we understand that, that we realize that we don't need a judge to measure whether we are good enough, we need a savior to save us from the reality that we are bad enough. You see the difference? On the journey, it's a journey of realization. It's a journey of understanding. And understanding that can be so liberating. If we live our lives constantly thinking, I've got to work harder at this. I've got to be good enough for the judge. I've got to be acceptable. Who is the judge? Paul tells us, Acts chapter 16, the judge is no less than the one who came and died. It is Jesus himself. He's the one who is the judge. And we're on a journey towards him. And the, the most important thing, if, if I say, if you remember anything this afternoon, please take a hold of this. You need to understand that on the walk of life, 
it is liberating to understand that you can never be good enough. As long as the step that you take is to rely then on a saviour. What does Jesus also say at the beginning of this sermon? He also says, but, listen, let me, let me tell you, the law stands. It doesn't change. When I said, you shall not kill, it remains. But now, he said, he's brought a new interpretation to you shall not kill, hasn't he? He said it means something more than you ever thought it did mean. But it still means that. And Jesus says, but I tell you what, when you realize that you are unable to keep that law, remember this. I am the one who fulfills every pen stroke of the law. Every little jot, every little idea, every little prince. So when I say, you think that the law is all about just whether you've shot somebody. And I say, actually, it's about whether you've had an attitude which raises me above that person and says, fool. They're the same thing. When you realize that, do you know what? I'm the one who's met that impossible requirement. I've met the impossible requirement. I've achieved what you cannot achieve. I've done what you cannot do. Our walk of life, therefore, is not in escaping. You want to say to Jeremy Clarkson, Richard Hammond, James May, it's not about escaping. It's not about escaping. It's about realizing. It's about understanding. It's about understanding that my life is never, never going to meet the mark. It won't. And so therefore, I'm, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to give up living in a way which wants to shape that. Of course not. I want to shape that life. But I want to shape that life, not because I can achieve it, but because I've been forgiven for my failures. That's what Jesus is saying. The walk of life is a preparation, therefore. It is preparing for the future. Jesus says many things starkly. He's basically saying here, you're on a journey to a judge, and you need to understand you're on the journey to the judge. And if we've got our thinking correctly shaped, we realize, and I am guilty. So what can I do? You know, very often he leaves those ideas in our thoughts so that we might step back and say, what do I do, therefore? The advantage that we have is that we are not sat seeing the message of Jesus unfold before us. We are able to look back and see the complete picture. We are able to look back and see that the one who says, you will fail, 
is also the one who says, but I will stand in your place. I will stand in your failure while you stand in my success. That's great news, isn't it? That is what the Bible describes as the gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's good news for us if we've been walking the Christian way for a week or a decade. It's good news because this reminds us that we're going to fail. And therefore, it's good news that Jesus is my success. But it's also good news if we're sat on the outside looking at Christians who are failing all around us, realizing it's not about their success. If we're deciding, I could never keep it up anyway, it's not about whether I will succeed. It's actually about his success. That's good news.